This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. It's the February episode. Welcome, listeners. I'm Chris Bramley, the magazine's editor, and I'm joined in the studio today by staff writer Ian Todd. Hello. And news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Hello. Special thanks to Ezzy uh, coming in. You've got this, uh, slight sniffles today, so thank you very much for making the effort, Ezzy. For Ez. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to Martin Harwitz from Cornell University about how some of the most familiar objects in the night sky were discovered. And we'll give you our top stargazing tip of this month. But now we're going to be taking a look at what we found out while putting together the February edition of the magazine. Yes. Ian, what stood out from you for the February issue? Well, we've, we've been discussing, I mean, the, the year kind of started off with a, a bit of a big bang, really, um, metaphorically speaking, of course, uh, just in, in terms of um, space exploration. It's already got off, got off to a good start because, mm-hmm. of course, we had the uh, New Horizons uh, Ultima Thule flyby on mm. New Year's Day and then the uh, Chang'e 4 um, a Chinese lunar explorer um, uh, landed on the, the dark side. Well, I shouldn't say the dark side, the far side of the moon mm. uh, on the 3rd of January. Um, the uh, flyby of Ultima Thule is, is yeah. pretty, I mean, it's it's the farthest kind of um, uh, cosmic encounter um, humans have ever uh, achieved. Um, and in case anyone's kind of late to the story, so Ultima Thule is like a, a Kuiper Belt object on the edge of the solar system. Beyond Pluto. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And these... Um, uh, objects um, are pro- probably about 4.5 billion years old, probably left over from the, the formation of the solar system. So mm. obviously uh, studying them means that you, c- you kind of get a look at what the early solar system might have been like, what how, how the solar system, system might have formed, and as a result, potentially how other planetary mm. systems around stars have formed. I mean, we got like an initial data and there's nothing really kind of... Um, mind-blowing that's coming yet. I mean, we know that um, Ultima Thule, uh, the, the Kuiper Belt object, is is red in colour. It's like two lobes mm-hmm. and people were comparing it to like a chicken drumstick or like a snowman online. <laughs> or, B, or BB-8. Yeah. I, like, I like those because the snowman, because every the pictures always make it look sort of like this lovely grey colour, but actually yeah. it's sort of this dark it's rusty, red. It's isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The, the, yeah. The, uh, I think it's supposed to be about as bright as potting soil. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's a dirty chicken drumstick. Um, yeah. <laughs> or Charming. A, a bowling pin, I, I, yeah. find, which I suppose maybe, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, but it's, it's, it's like, so it's like 30, 30 kilometers in diameter, just, just to give you an idea. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be kind of what we've found so far is what isn't there. So we know that there's no evidence of rings or moons around the object. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence mm-hmm. of an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently it's going to take like 20 months to receive all the data from the flyby. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so far away, isn't it? The, yeah. it's, re- the downlink time is, is huge, isn't it? It's, I remember reading somewhere that its uh, download speed is 20 times slower than a dial-up modem. Whoa. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> and I remember trying to download pictures on a dial-up modem and that took long enough, let yeah. alone yeah. trying yeah. to do it from the other end yeah. of the, the yeah. solar system. <laughs> the edge of the solar system, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah I, I, can't the, I can't remember the stat exactly, but it was something like the mission was, was effectively like driving past a house that's two miles away at 300 miles per hour and trying to take mm. a photo of it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, it was because it's, it's moving at colossal speed, isn't it? 20, yeah. 20, 20 miles a second or something it like that. It was yeah. until Parker launched, I'm pretty sure New Horizons was the fastest mm. man-made object. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, of, yeah. And, of course, it's uh, kind of since 2015, it was spent all its time around the, around the Pluto system looking at yes. Pluto. And then mm. there, it was kind of one of those classic NASA, like, well, we've got the spacecraft. It doesn't have any fuels, but we can probably use gravitational pull mm. to fling it out towards the Kuiper belt and see, <laughs> see what happens. Or it's still yeah. work. Yeah. 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 It's, I think it's, yeah. Got, it's got enough thrusters to be able to just kind of, like, flick it like a couple of degrees one way or another yeah. exactly. to sort of fine-tune it. Um, I think they're also looking for a, or they will be soon, um, looking for a third target that they might be really? able to fly That's past. pretty handy, isn't it? Um, yeah, being able to zip between these two, all these kind of distant objects. Exactly. Amazing. And you kind of wonder, like, the success of this, does this meet, does this kind of raise the potential for, you know, a future um, expedition to go out and look at, like, a, mm. one of the dwarf planets in the Kuiper Belt, maybe, like, you know, Eris mm. or something like mm. that? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but but speaking of which, if if you if you do manage to get a copy of our February issue um, this month in the bonus content, I was speaking to Kerry uh, Lissa, who's one of the New Horizons team, and he's kind of giving us the uh, lowdown and all the all the info so far and, and what yeah. to expect in the coming months. Uh, apparently, we're going to get a lot more, lot better images and science results around March time, so that'll be worth looking out for. Awesome. Um, and as we said, yeah, the uh, the Chinese Space Agency has put a, a, a lunar lander and a rover on the on the far side of the moon. This is really exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Historic first landing on the far side, isn't it? Because yeah. up until now, up until that mission, the only the only people to have seen the far side of the moon were the Apollo astronauts mm. in the command module. Yeah. yeah, the loneliest people. Michael in Collins. Yeah, yeah. yeah there yeah. was there were some orbiters that went round to yeah. to take pictures, so that the moon's been fully mapped. But mm. yes, there's. They knew people to, to see it with their own eyes. Yeah, yeah and, and they knew that it's a lot more cratered and crusty. I, I mean, I guess that's because the moon's tidally locked so it's more it's it's more exposed to it's one of the big questions is that the moon is slightly lopsided its crust is thicker on one side than it is yeah. on the other there's more mare on our side of the moon so the big yeah. you know the man in the moon craters like the sea of tranquility and stuff yeah. um than there is on the far side and no one's 100% sure why there's a lot of different theories about it to be to do with the the tidal locking um mm, mm, mm. but that's yeah that's one of those things that is still being researched and having mm. to find out soon. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's there quite a lot of stuff on social media and different people weighing in because the images that have come back show the lunar surface as being red. And that's mm-hmm. that's to do with it being like raw data because mm. as we know from like the Cassini and the Juno missions, and uh, the, the red and the green and the blue channels are all done separately and then yeah. they're all put together. You can see, you can see, oh, raw, I see. Yeah, right, you, yeah. So like, you can see raw images of, of Juno, or sorry, Jupiter, if you go yes. on the, the Juno website and you can kind of download those and if you know what you're doing, Put the images together and do a bit of imaging yourself. But um, yeah, so we had D- David Rothery from the from the Planetary Society was kind of uh, he's got a good um, 
uh, article about it on the uh, Planetary Society website. Mm. And mm. Uh, ESA's Mark McCochran was on Twitter and he he, he had done his own image mm. calibration and shown how if you treat the channels properly and expand the green and the blue, it does end up being grey, like the surface of the moon, like the like the Apollo. Well, um, some people saying that it was it was this conspiracy theory. <laughs> oh, well, they come in and they just did it. They just did it in a hangar. Yeah, in Shangzi or something. The, like that. the thing that amused me most was because obviously it happened, you know, a couple of days after the Ultima Thule flyby, and you're yeah. seeing these Ultima Thule pictures where it was grey, even though it was red, and you were seeing the moon where it was red, even though it was grey, and it was like they've got the <laughs> things the wrong way around. Yeah, um, yeah. but I I have loved seeing sort of more information coming out of the the, the, the Chang'e 4 lander. Um, yeah. Like this morning, they announced that they'd managed to actually, uh, there's some bean sprouts. Mm. Um, oh, there was yes. a little yeah. onboard experiment to them, see if they? you yeah. can like create, uh, to grow things on the moon and create a sort of like closed environment. Um, and they got their first bean sprout yeah, uh, this and morning. Yeah, it sprouted. Wow. Yes. Because it's incredible because wow, yeah. they've got like seeds and insect eggs. Mm. So wow. the, hope, the hope is that obviously... The insects will produce carbon dioxide, and then the plants, which will, will photosynthesize, yeah. and mm. they'll create their own wee atmosphere. And the only it's, it's supposed to be like kind of like, like Earth-like uh, conditions, apart wow. from apart from gravity, apart yeah. from like the lower gravity. So then they'll have a similar control yes. on Earth and see. You know, I, I suppose that's fascinating. The, yeah. the the kind of the cheapest and and most effective quick way of creating a kind of biome. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah, I suppose with a view to. In theory, at least, working out whether or not you could do similar things with humans and well, larger vegetation. I don't yeah. know if that's, that, that yeah. is definitely the sort yeah. of well, uh, same with with NASA um, is is their long term goal is to get humans out into space, potentially colonizing or mm. setting up some mm. kind of permanent base on the moon and getting onto Mars. Um, mm. That's always been their long term goal. Uh, they're 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 going mm. about it methodically. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe one day. Yeah. Definitely something to keep an eye on in the months to come, I think, Definitely, yeah, yeah. this year. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. Thanks. I spotted something that was also in our news pages this month, a small, a smaller story. Um, it caught my eye, um, which is about black holes. Now, they're some of the brightest and hottest objects in the universe. Um, but some research into supermassive black holes recently has um, found that come up with something decidedly unsuperlative. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, now, black holes have a kind of corona around them, which is like superheated gas, kind of like the sun. Um, and But in the case of supermassive black holes, these are superheated phenomenally, to, and they're, they're, as, they're a billion degrees mm-hmm. um, centigrade. Um, and it's long be, been assumed that corona, these coronae were heated by uh, the magnetic field the energy in the magnetic field around the black hole. Um, and so uh, a team of Japanese scientists from Riken and the Japanese space agency JAXA um, did, some, did some measurements uh, and uh, did some measurements of the magnetic field around two kind of nearby black holes um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the universe. And they found that the magnetic fields were, were less strong than a fridge magnet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. It's just, it's just, I just, I just actually, um, I just kind of went ah like that when I read the thing because I was just so astounded. You know, you see, you see all these black holes. They kind of build as this, these kind of colossal, uh, violent behemoths that would suck you in and turn you into spaghetti if ever you got close yeah. to the event horizon. Mm-hmm. And actually, they're, you know, the, the, the we're talking about energies on the scale of a fridge magnet. It's, yeah. it's, 
I find that just amazing, you know. But this isn't this, this isn't like the same as their their gravitational pull because obviously their, their gravitational yes. pull it has to be so str- stronger are, than the speed of light. Yeah, yeah. they are right, they are right. still um, so black holes are, are points in space where everything's become so dense that mm. um, not even their gravitational pull is such that even light can't escape. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that is still the same. They are still incredibly dense. Um, mm. The gravitational pull is is ridiculous. Um, mm. Once you get past the the event horizon. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's apparently they don't have much of a magnetic field, mm. which which kind of makes sense to me because if you think about it on uh, in the sun and the earth and the planets that we know about, the magnetic field is caused by stuff moving around. Mm. Mm. Um, and mm. admittedly, I don't know what goes on inside of a black hole. I don't think anybody <laughs> does, but I, I, I can't yeah. really imagine it. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff moving around in there. Yeah. So, yeah. hmm. But it's funny. It's interesting. So I'd always kind of uh, thought, you know, with these colossal gravitational attraction of a of the mass of a black hole you know the kind of most massive things in in the universe um you know that the, the whole everything around about it would be of that order of magnitude yeah you know the temperature is of a, a billion degrees these things yeah. some of the hottest yeah. things in the whole cosmos and yet you know we just don't know <laughs> now what's yeah. driving the thing because you know a, a, Astronomers had all assumed that there was this colossal magnetic fields around. Exactly. They measured two of them, and they both turned out to be rather weak, which is a really interesting development yeah. in the, you know, the latest and the fascinating story of black holes, which leads us nicely onto our interview. It does indeed, actually. Yeah, um, this this episode, I'm talking to Martin Harwood, who's a, an astronomer from uh, Cornell University, uh, and he's talking about his. Uh, new book, uh, Cosmic Discovery. Well, I say new, it's actually um, being re-released after over 35 years. Um, and the, the book is really about uh, how the familiar, familiar objects in the night sky uh, were first discovered. Um, and I started off by asking Martin uh, what have been the biggest discoveries since his book was first released? There are two major discoveries that have been made since that time. The first one is that uh, we are able to observe neutrinos coming in from the universe. The second one is that we can observe uh, gravitational waves coming in from the universe. The first one is important because uh, we can obtain signals from supernovae, which tell us what is going on in the center of a supernova just at the time that it's exploding. The second one is important because um, it tells us that the theory of general relativity of Einstein is correct and that there are major investments the universe makes in emitting signals as gravitational waves, and that was something that we did not know before. Mm-hmm. And the book obviously is all about uh, cosmic discovery, you know, hence the title. Um, but it's it, it's being re-released now after I think it's a period of over thirty-five years. Um, First of all, wh- why did you decide to to write the book in the first place? And second of all, um, why did you decide to re-release it? I wrote it in the first place for two reasons. One of them was that astronomers were making uh, detailed plans every 10 years for what equipment should be built, what major telescopes ought to be installed, constructed and installed. But the major discoveries that we were making were coming in from quite a different area, different region. Uh, They were being made by smaller instruments, radio instruments, X-ray detectors, um, 
infrared detectors. All were hand-me-downs from the military. And so there was a disconnect between where the, mis where the discoveries were coming from and uh, what the major committees that the astronomical community had set up was advising NASA and the National Science Foundation. And I wanted to show that contrast and show that we needed to do things differently in some way and uh, what that difference might be. Uh, the second point about writing Cosmic Discovery was that there seemed to be ways of gauging how much more was to be done in astronomy, what the limitations would be about what we were able to find out, and among the many phenomena that had been discovered, how many more of the same magnitude could we expect in the future? And those were the two major topics that uh, I tried to portray. Uh, the, second, the second thrust was in response to a sort of hand-waving argument that people always had, well, we don't know, there'll be an infinite number of things we could discover in the universe. Um, we'll never run out of things to discover. And I felt that that was inaccurate description of what the universe was like. Could you foresee a, a period in that kind of hypothetical future when humans have humanity has, has discovered everything there is to know about the universe? Do you think that that would be possible? Um, the answer is sort of twofold again. One is what you mean by have we, we have discovered everything. It looks to me now that as though there are certain things that the universe very efficiently hides from us. It just erases information very assiduously. And so there are things that we won't find out because the universe decided not to uh, not to let us see that part of its history. The other thing is that um, we are going to reach a limit at which we have constructed all the instruments, most likely, that are going to be useful for studying the universe because it only has a certain number of media through which it can transmit information. And I think that we will be reaching at some point, maybe within the next couple of centuries, uh, where we have built all the instruments that would allow us access to what the universe is allowing us to see. Um, and um, then after that, we can keep looking and sometimes maybe we'll find something that has come through that we had missed before. But it won't be for want of having the instruments available. It'll just be that uh, some things the universe only very seldom sends out signals in, and we will then find those signals, but they're probably not going to be very influential in letting us understand what the universe does. Just to come back to your, your first point there, I'm wondering if you could give me or, or, or give us an example or two of, of some of the things that the universe is, is particularly particularly good at hiding from us. Well, certainly the universe is, is very efficiently hiding from us what was going on in the first several hundred thousand years of its existence. At that time, there was just this fog of free electrons that were floating around. Atoms hadn't formed because the universe was too hot, so electrons were dissociated from atomic nuclei. 
many protons, and a fog of electrons scatters light extremely efficiently at all wavelengths. And so no electromagnetic or light signals, radio waves, and so forth could come out of this fog. And uh, so we are unable to look back using light or using x-rays or using infrared or radio emission uh, to see anything. You know, it's just as though you're just enveloped and everything has been enveloped in, in this fog and we won't see anything. Now, if there were neutrinos emitted at that time, as we suspect there were, then we might be able to see something. But even those would probably be just uniformly spread around the whole universe. And we would just see an infra, a neutrino background radiation uniformly spread across the sky. And that's actually something that we're looking for now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting what you were saying there about um, kind of reaching the uh, limit of of the different instruments that we can build, because I think there's quite a complicated relationship between the progress of technology and um, astronomy and cosmology and what we want to discover. I was be interested to hear what what you think is the kind of relationship between technology and astronomical discovery. Do you think one fuels the other? Does discovery fuel technology or technology fuel discovery? Or is it is it a bit of both? <laughs> technology produces discoveries. There's no question. Um, after World War II, we were being handed um, antiquated instruments that the military had used the previous year, but now they were no longer tip of the you know tip of the technology, and so we would get radio techniques that hadn't been available until about a year ago. And we could use those. They were handed down because now the military had that much better, two times, three times, five times, ten times better uh, radio techniques available to itself. And so it figured they might as well hand down to the astronomers those uh, things that were useful a year or two ago, but no longer were at the forefront of, of technology. And as a result, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, we were steadily discovering pulsars and quasars and uh, magnetic fields in interstellar space, all through the radio techniques that had been made available to us, essentially free of charge in the United States by the military. Same thing with uh, infrared detectors. All of infrared astronomy, where we now see thermal emission coming from all over the universe in different forms. Those detectors all were made available by um, the military because they were looking for thermal radiation from all kinds of uh, military targets that otherwise would be invisible. And and to to top this all off, the first uh, real gamma ray bursts that were observed were observed by a technique that the military had developed of, of placing military satellites in space so that they would be able to see whether the Soviet Union was conducting secret nuclear bomb bursts out in space, which would have violated the uh, nuclear armament disarmament treaties that had been negotiated in the early 1960s. Uh, and and so the the military actually kept the discovery of gamma ray bursts from the universe secret for about three years until they decided, well, they could now afford to make them public and published it in the Astrophysical Journal letters, much to the surprise of astronomers who 
had never expected them. So you can see it was really pervasive. Technology brought about the discoveries and still do. Yes, I mean, it's interesting there that you're saying that uh, a lot of the astronomical equipment that made the big discoveries were kind of essentially hand-me-downs from, from the military. Um, do, you th- do you think that um, uh, the, the cosmic discovery would be a lot greater if, if all that um, knowledge and, and, and money had, had been spent on, on science and astronomy in the first place? No, I don't think so, because um, scientists tend to be very conservative. And so once they have some tools in hand, um, they keep on replicating those tools, making them a little more sensitive. They don't think about other tools that were outside the immediate domain. And and this is something that at least was certainly true of pre-World War II astronomers who kept building better and better optical telescopes. And even until the end of the 1960s, they were the national plans that astronomers were proposing were plans for building bigger telescopes of the same kind that they'd used before. Um, they weren't thinking of building telescopes sensitive to X-rays or gamma rays or looking for neutrinos or looking for gravitational waves. Those influences came in from the physics community that thought that there might be something that um, could be done in those with with that kind of messengers, namely neutrinos and gravitational waves, that would allow them to understand their own theories better, general relativity and nuclear physics theories, and and so that was the driving force that it came from the physics community rather than from the astronomy community. And that's what the book was trying to point out and and eventually became actually the basis on which NASA then uh, decided to build the great observatories. This group of four observatories, one dedicated to gamma rays, one to X-rays, one to the infrared, and, and the Hubble Space Telescope put out in space for visible work. But it was only the visible component of that was only one quarter, and the other three were for X-rays, gamma rays, and, and the infrared, which until fairly recently at that time, astronomers had, only young astronomers were using those. The establishment astronomers were still just asking for optical sensors. Mm. One of the other things that you, you discuss in the book is uh, the idea that so many of the big discoveries were made um, effectively by accident, by people who weren't looking for what they essentially found. I think it's very interesting to, to consider that. Um, do you think that kind of serendipity has played um, just as an important part in uh, in our knowledge of the universe? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I think it's not quite as prevalent now. But it's certainly true that almost every time that we uh, install a new capability, such as, for example, the the gravitational wave antennas that came online three years ago in 2015 and finally had the sensitivity to see way out into the universe, by that time, actually, the theorists who work in general relativity had predicted that one ought to be able to see gravitational waves from sufficiently massive black hole stars or stellar black holes, um, which in pairs would combine and merge and produce a certain signal. 
But we didn't know whether those pairs of uh, black holes ever existed. And so it was really very satisfying that for once, the theoretical models that had been worked out for that gave exactly the right predictions for what was observed. And once one saw that, one could immediately interpret the data in great depth uh, and great detail because the models had been so carefully prepared. Now, this means in a way that the, the community, the theoretical community, had caught up to the technology. But it took a long time for that to happen, and I think in this case it happened because the physicists were so eager to uh, check out general relativity that they had built really complex models by then, and one could trust them. Mm. Um, what are the uh, mysteries left in the universe that you would most most like to see solved? What are the what are the kind of un, un, unsolved questions that you personally would, would would love to know the answers to? Probably the. The ones that are the most interesting at the moment that one one would like to know more about are the kinds of signals that would have been emitted in in the first uh, fraction, minute fraction of a second, in the existence of the universe. And and by minute one means something like billions and billions and billions, as Carl Sagan used to say, ten to the minus forty three seconds. So this would be a decimal point followed by 43 zeros and then a one for a fraction of a second. And that's um, some of that one is beginning to approach. And um, the microwave background radiation measurements that one has at the moment from the Planck mission and most recently that ESA had launched the European Space Agency. But one would like to really understand what was going on in those eras and, and get more information. I would also be interested to know what you think are the are, are the biggest hurdles to actually make, making some of those discoveries? Um, probably it's the magnitude of the funding that would be required to to get a complete view of what was going on at the funding levels that we now have, which are really pretty generous when you think that astronomy is not really terribly useful to people's everyday lives. And so you have to reconcile yourself to the idea that you know people would rather feed their children than to have another astronomical discovery. Uh, but at the present funding levels, I think within a couple of centuries or so, we would probably have seen as much of what the universe is willing, as I said, to let us see without erasing it before it gets to us. And um, we'll we'll know as much as we can at that point, probably. Well, uh, Martin, thank you very much for uh, speaking to me today. It's uh, It's been absolutely fascinating uh, hearing your uh, thoughts on uh, cosmic discovery and uh, good, luck with the, good luck with the book. Thank you very much. That was Martin Harwitt. You can find out more about how the most important astronomical bodies were first discovered in his book, Cosmic Discovery, The Search, Scope and Heritage of Astronomy. There's lots to see in the night sky this month, which we cover in detail in our sky guide in this month's issue. But if you're only going to see one thing in the night sky in February, take a moment to appreciate the full moon as it rises over the horizon on the 19th of February. It's going to be the largest one of the year, the perigee moon, which some people call the supermoon. From the centre of the UK, moonrise is at 5.15pm, and it'll be slightly earlier or later, depending on your location. Many people claim that the moon appears to be at its largest when it's near the horizon, but this is an illusion. 
The perceived size difference is actually our brain playing tricks on us. The horizon gives our eyes a frame of reference, and our brain interprets this as the moon being larger. You can put the theory to the test by measuring the size of the moon with your fingers when it's near the horizon, and then again when it's high in the sky, and you should find the moon is the same in size no matter its elevation. So to find out more about why February's full moon really is bigger and not just an illusion, and if you fancy having a go at capturing the event on camera, it's all covered in the February issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. So that's it from us this month. You can find out more about the latest missions to explore our solar system and black holes in the February issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. And not forgetting our regular sections, which help you unlock the wonders of the night sky, find the right equipment to observe it with, and discover the best things to see after dark this month. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.